Strongman Academy podcast number 13. Today I've got a, a friend and a very special man in my life, Drew Rollins. Uh, he's serving in his 16th year as the chaplain at St. Albans, the Episcopalian Church on LSU's campus. And he really embodies what it means to be a strong man. He's a wonderful husband, father of five incredible children, an accomplished ultra swimmer, which he'll go into in a little bit. Uh, a scholar, a theologian, a priest, and a servant of God and the students of LSU. Drew, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself for a couple minutes? Wow. Well, I'm I am flattered. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you talking about? Well, that's uh, I'm flattered to be here, and uh, yeah, I'm um, I'm the chaplain at St. Albans on the LSU campus, so I do uh, a lot of ministry with students and. Uh, um, I love doing that, doing that work, but I'm also a dad and a husband and uh, sometime athlete and all those things, yeah, and guitar player. So you didn't mention guitar. You, but, um, you, you are guitar, an avid uh, bluegrass. Avis, avid bluegrass fan, yes, but uh, not so accomplished. Yeah, <laughs> it's, still, it's still fun, and I enjoy listening to it. Yeah. <laughs> So, one thing that really got me thinking about Drew, besides, you know, immediately for this, besides just his, his incredible influence in my life, is I was listening to a different podcast the other day, and there was a quote from a guy that was the state, the teacher of the year for the state of New York, and he ended up retiring from education because he felt like it was... I mean, I'm, I hate to say this, an indoctrination factory. He felt we focused way too much on academics and telling kids to sit down and shut up and obey and not enough on what really matters most in life. And his quote was, the two biggest things we should focus on in teaching children is how to live and how to die. And how to die. I'm like, how do you teach kids how to die? So the main reason I really wanted to interview Drew is to get to that how to die piece. Uh, he's had a few sermons that just blew me away, specifically related to death and, and how to do so gracefully um, and like a man. Uh, but the connection with this man that I have runs really deep in my life. Um, I mean, behind my father and my high school wrestling coach, Drew is without a doubt been the third most influential man of any man in my life. Um, when I went back to the church right after I graduated college in 2004, he confirmed me. Um, when me and my wife started dating and, and going to church and got serious, he confirmed her. We got married in St. Albans. He um, baptized my son and he allows us to serve uh, in the church, which is something I'm, I'm very grateful for in life. So, I mean, like I said, I can't think of a, a stronger man and, and, and the right kind of strong man. You know, no type of toxic masculinity, none of that, how a man should be in, in pure form. So I'm, I'm so happy to have him here. So we're going to cut straight to the chase. Let's talk first about how we can take Christianity its values, and how we can incorporate it into our lives as strong men, and then how we can teach these powerful principles in a secular public school setting without crossing any lines. 
Well, that's such a powerful quote from uh, the teacher that you started with about um, teaching students to live and to die. And it, it makes me think that there was a, there was a time when uh, in, a, in, in culture where teaching was how to live and how to die. Um, and he's, he's described it perfectly. The problem is that, that teaching, the role of teaching, has become slowly uh, more and more specialized to the point where teachers are, um, I, I think many do not see their vocation in that, those large terms. Um, it, it used to be that the role of teaching um, was uh, held by religious leaders, whether they be priests or rabbis or that role in the, it was uh, uh, the teaching role was held in large part by the church and then that sep or the or the synagogue and that was separated out um, now it's very separate but part of what has been lost in that is this uh, sense that we have a responsibility to teach uh, young men in your case, how to live and how to die, to think in those, in those terms. Um, there was a time in the church, and really until just the last generation, when it was, uh, didn't, was understood, didn't have to be explained, that the role of the priest, one of, one of the major roles of the priest, was to teach people how to prepare for death. And that's what I'm getting at, and I think maybe what you're uh, alluding to in things that I've preached on before that we have to be, we need help in learning how to prepare to die and how to approach death, how to approach our own deaths, how to approach the deaths of people who live, who are close to us. And part of what's happening in our culture now is that uh, the reality of death is uh, kept away from us, you know, because of the, the way that uh, the funeral home industry you know, it's almost as if when someone dies, the body can just, I, I, often I will, I will get, a spe, get to the hospital as fast as I can once someone, there'll be a, a call that someone has, has died or is close to death. But by the time I'm there, it's like they have, they have escaped into the ether. The body is gone. The family doesn't know where the body went. Um, and the funeral home sort of takes over, not to denigrate their work, but they, they in this culture, they really do take, take over Often the body is cremated, there may be no, ser no service, and so the family is really left to deal with death uh, without much help if they're not connected to some church, synagogue, even mosque, any, any religion to speak broadly, and any religious, uh, no pastor in their life that instructs them in that. It used to be even probably two generations back when you're, if you looked at your grandparents, you probably had a grand, uh, someone that died in their home and the family knew what to do with a body. We don't know how to, we don't, we have to have a funeral home now. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, but there was all, there were layers of instruction for people and how to prepare for death and how to walk through it, through the grieving process um, and the, uh, the uh, leaving behind what, what you are to prepare to leave behind for those you love. 
Um, so all of these levels, um, I think we're woefully unprepared for, and I see it all the time when, when um, it's the exception that someone is prepared for death, uh, sadly. Yeah. So <clears throat> kind of touch on, you know, the morals and the values of Christianity. It's unfortunate if our children aren't going to church on their own, I feel like they're missing the boat on a lot of it. If they don't, if they don't have it coming from the home, mm-hmm. and they're not brought to church, there's so many great values in there. I mean, look at Proverbs. I mean, look at the wisdom mm-hmm. that comes from Proverbs. Right. Um, the stuff that comes from a lot of the Gospels and Revelations, and, and it's a lot of Paul stuff. I look at it and I'm like, this. These guys were really deep. I mean, they were super deep. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I meditate to try to get deep, and then I get in this certain space in my head, and then I read their stuff, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, there's so much more than face value here. Mm-hmm. So how do we take a lot of those principles and teachings, and, and how do we teach them, like I said, in a secular setting mm-hmm. in the mm-hmm. public schools? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's tricky. Yeah. <laughs> I have the freedom of, of not having to worry about that. I can really uh, speak very directly. Um, I guess that the thought I would have is approaching it, uh, and this is not the full story, but, but you can teach the Bible as literature. You can teach the Proverbs, the Psalms as poetry, um, standing alongside any great poetry or any great literature. And that's not the full picture of what we believe about the scriptures, but it is it's at least a place to, to start um, and to expose pe- people. There was a time, there was a time when you, you would not, uh, well, to back up, you can't, under, you can't really read Shakespeare without understanding the Bible. You can't read much of uh, classical drama and poetry and literature unless you understand the Bible, because when the Bible was, when those books were written, when those plays were written, the Bible was such a part of the culture and such a part of the vocabulary and the, the, the thought, think the, the vocabulary, the thought process, the, the dictionary that these writers, great writers were drawing on. Right. Well, um, the, well the term in alliteration, hmm. I mean, that's, that's a, a cornerstone of classical literature. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and for those of you listening that don't know what an alliteration is, it is a a reference to a biblical event or quote. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm with you. You know, if you don't know the context t- context there, you're lost. One of my favorite books ever mm-hmm. is Machiavelli the Prince, and it's const- He's got so many footnotes in it to Roman history, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I was in the middle of of. A, a history graduate program when I read The Prince and it was easy breezy just flowed perfectly I'm just like oh yeah they're talking about Cesare Borgia they're talking about Marcus Aurelius I'm like oh yeah 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 and I'm flowing you know and I tell a lot of people I'm like oh, read The Prince it's 90 pages it's a quick easy read mm-hmm. and they're like dude I'm lost mm-hmm. because they don't know that reference point right right yeah yeah well, I think there. I would think in a, even in a public school setting, there would be a lot of room to uh, study portions of the Bible as literature, 
Um, you can get it, the, uh, you know, something as, as basic as the, the 23rd Psalm holds a place in our culture, not just in religious life. Um, so I would think there's room there. And you, you mentioned that um, the, the, the principles and the moral themes and part of that whole landscape of the Bible is the reality of death. You know, our, um, our, our lives are like grass. We, um, we, uh, the reality of death is all over the, both the Old and the New Testament. And that's part of what's missing in just the, the, the view of um, uh, what it means to be alive today. The, uh, the whole culture of, the whole emphasis of the culture is on prolonging youth. Yeah. Um, and against the reality of we age and die. Right. <laughs> it's just, you, you, know, you may, we do extend it. We are extending life, but you're going to die. Um, and that is a, that is the, also psychologically, that is the most profound reality of existence is that you, you we all face death um, but so much of our culture is in complete denial about that um, so just bring gosh just bringing up the subject of death is a huge step and I would I would think it would be very unusual in a public school setting yeah or and, any setting really and, and I feel like until we teach mortality we it's hard to teach the immortality of our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, the legacy we leave, right. the things that we do that, that, have, that have been here forever and that mm -hmm. will exist forever. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, I feel like there's so many things. I think the fear of dying is undoubtedly the number one fear that, that humans have. Mm -hmm. and, and until you suspend that fear or at least em embrace the idea of it, you're not going to free up all these possibilities that you really can do your whole life. Right. You know, I think of like um, the Iliad and Achilles. You know, and the oracle asks him, she, he says, you know, should I go fight in the Trojan War? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and she says, well, two, two sides to that coin. If you... Don't fight in the Trojan War. You'll live a long life. And you'll have a lot of kids. <laughs> She's like, if you do fight, on the, on the other hand, though, if you do fight in the Trojan War, you're going to have a short life, but they'll be talking about you for all of time. Your legacy, mm -hmm. you know, will live forever. Right. So it's just a dichotomy of that mortality versus immortality. And then I also kind of like yeah. wonder about the whole like when you teach someone to die, I guess there's metaphors for it, like the, the phoenix and the rebirth, you know, and I, th I feel like throughout life we have to kind of, the, our old selves have to die in order to become something better. Yes, that... I would say that is certainly true about life, that there's, there's a part of a life that is, is cyclical. You know, you die, parts of your life die, and then there's rebirth, and there's death again. There, there's truth. There's, there's a truth to that. 
However, the the Judeo-Christian understanding of life is really uh, it, uh, is linear. Okay. Meaning there is there is a a beginning creation. Yeah. And there and there will be an end, the last day. I mean, Jews and Christians are in full agreement about that. Um, there's a lot we don't agree about, but but we agree about on that. Um, that that linear shape of life is really in in conflict with a lot of the sort of general spirituality that's floating around today, which is that um, you know it's sort of the Lion King, the great circle of life, you know. Um, right. And uh, and that's not what uh, Christians or Jews believe. Okay. Um, that life is, and not, but there are part. There, it's true. There are there are death and rebirth is experienced in in many ways. But uh, it, our, our the biblical story is creation to the last day. Um, so we that's uh, I mean that that is talking in specifically Christian language or specifically Jewish language. Muslim, I would not don't know as much about whether that would. They would agree. I think they'd probably agree as well. The major religions would agree about that, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, good. We'll, we'll move in subjects a little bit. Yeah. Um, so for my those listeners out there that don't know, and I don't think you know this, Drew, yeah. for my curriculum, I have something I call a pyramid of maturity. Okay. The first level is self-awareness, and it's got five elements. The second level is uh, the four tenets of discipline. It's got four elements. The third level is... Um, adding value to our lives physically, mentally, and socially. And then the fourth level is is really on how we can develop the ultimate positive relationship builder. As as people, as men, mm-hmm. how can we become the best relationship builder possible? And and the two boxes that that can sometimes be opposing but ultimately we can learn to work together or the idea of empathy, mm-hmm. and then the idea of good judgment. Mm-hmm. So what does empathy mean mm-hmm. to you? What does good judgment mean to mm-hmm. you? And then how does a young man strive to be the best version of himself by really balancing mm-hmm. those two? Wow. Well, I think when I think of empathy, I think of being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes, to reserve judgment until you have at least considered how they are, how some, how someone else is feeling, you know? So if you, uh, empathy and, uh, it, it's easier to empathize with someone when you've had the same experience, then, you know, then we say, well, I can really empathize with what you're going through because I have had, you know, that's, that's much easier. It's harder when someone is in a very, is experiencing something you have never, I mean, I, I cannot really empathize with a, woman who's about to give birth you know i can sympathize with it but i can't i can't really put myself but i can i can try to put myself in her shoes and see what that person might be feeling so yeah i would say that's extremely that uh, that has everything to do with maturity to be able to set aside your own ego and your own that you know we all want to be heard we want to put our judgments out there to set that aside and consider what it's what life is like for this other person who's who's not me um 
that kind of reserve is yeah very much a part of maturity and what children really is is uh, uh, developmentally impossible for them to do when they're little you know they don't that's why that's why you're one big <laughs> one huge step for a teenager is when they figure out how important it is and how powerful it is to ask their mom or dad how was your day wow yeah that's inc- i mean if for all you teenagers out there <laughs> try it try asking your mom or dad how was your day and listening actually and actually listening to how their day was and it will absolutely change your relationship because they do not they do not expect that and and children never almost never do that they're just not developmentally there teenagers begin to get to a point where oh there's somebody else besides me yeah um now, if you're not there as a husband or wife, then you're in trouble. <laughs> we need to be able to ask right. your husband or wife, how was your day? And listen, which is empathy, you know, connecting, yeah. with, connecting with what they have been through. Yeah, there's a quote. I kind of I, I stole the concepts from a few different people, so I'm not going to call it completely my quote. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I'm going to call it my quote. On the road to authenticity, we must realize that our vulnerabilities can become our currency. And, and mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like uh-huh. you embrace that well because a lot of your sermons opens up with, so listen about this story from my life and my family. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, and you connect with people, I guess, by letting them know like, hey, your problems are not your problems alone. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I hope I do that. Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's crucial. Yeah. And then you mentioned the second part was judgment. Good judgment. Yeah. Good judgment. Um, I find that harder. Um, uh, I think that's, I mean, there's, there's, there's wisdom which you can receive from someone else. You know, that's why it's important to have mentors and to listen well to teachers, the right teachers in your life, your mentors. Yeah. Judgment, I think, in my right, is, would be more like in a particular situation that you find yourself in, what do you do? That's when you need judgment. Yeah. You, that's, a, that's applying the wisdom that you have to a particular situation. Yeah, because um, I, I feel like they're combating because a lot of times a kid's in a situation where he's he's with his friend, uh-huh. and his friend is he's like, well, I don't I don't know if I should do this maybe, but but he's doing I can't leave him alone, mm-hmm. and, and you know ultimately I think a lot of times right. it's an excuse, right? But I think as that like you were saying earlier, as a teenager, their their frontal cortex is still developing, mm-hmm. you know, to have good judgment. Mm-hmm. And and to have empathy, so they kind of meld those two together, and it's like how do, how do we as we're as we're coming through our formative years really learn to own both of those separately, but to balance them? Yeah, yeah. To exercise good judgment in situations when you're under pressure is very hard. I know for me, one of the things that's very important is to to not uh, recognize when I'm under such stress that I'm not going to be able to make good decisions 
and so to hold off making decisions. You know, you don't want to, in, in AA they talk about not making decisions when you're you know, too tired, too hungry, or too something else. <laughs> Angry? Maybe. Angry maybe. Yeah. 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 There are times when you should avoid making decisions, and that seems to be very wise to me. Um, that you're, there are times you're going to be better at exercising good judgment. Um, so I think that has to do with, um, you know, you mentioned meditation before, prayer, meditation, quiet, you know, being, coming so that you can access a place where you're calmer and you want to make your decisions out of that more quiet place. Yeah. But, you know, when you're in the, when you're in the middle of it, when you're in an argument, when you're surrounded by all sorts of pressures, it's, it's hard for anybody to do that, not just teenagers. Yeah. It's just maybe a little, you get, you, you get some experience under your belt and then you do realize, wow, you know, this is not the moment for me to make a decision. Yeah. Well, it's a struggle still. I'm 40 years old and I still have this struggle between empathy and good judgment with Brandon. You know, he wants, he wants to go play with this kid Mm -hmm. and I'm like, well, this kid's kind of (laughs) bad, you know, and I don't know. He's, Mm -hmm. he hits people Mm. and I don't know if I want my son Mm -hmm. hanging out with people that are hitting people. Mm -hmm. And then he starts hitting people and he's five years old. Right. But then the empathy kicks in and I'm like, I know where this kid's coming from, man. He's coming from a rough background. He needs friends and he needs good friends in his life. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to exercise good judgment in the moment, which is hard. Yeah. I remember you you reminded me of one of my, something that one of my mentors told me years ago that was very helpful. He was was talking about being a pastor and being under pressure as a priest. He said, there are very few situations where a good answer where you cannot say, I need to pray about that some. You know, you're gonna be you're gonna find yourself under all sorts of pressure. Um, and maybe as a teacher you can't can't say I've got to pray about that. Maybe you can just say I, I'm gonna have to think, oh, I, think about that. I, I can. Yeah. I mean but I the do pressure I don't is, know if I can, I do. <laughs> I think about that a lot because people, you know, often want an answer right now. And uh we find ourselves under that pressure all the time. And, and sometimes you have to give an answer right away. But most of the time, part of the, the wisdom would be, the wisdom is to say, um, I'm going to have to think about that or pray about that or take that to the Lord, you know. Um, yeah. So that we can, you can make a decision out of a place of calm. Right. Yeah, that, that, that brings me back to the, the promotion that actually took me out of the classroom from a teacher into an administrative role. Mm-hmm. My, my former principal offered it to me, boom, right in the moment. And she was like, so you, you going to do it? And I, was, <laughs> I said, you know what, Miss Lewis? I, sounds like a great opportunity. Mm-hmm. I love you. I appreciate the opportunity. I'll let you know in 24 hours. And she's like, what? I mean, I've got a decision to make. Hold on, Miss Lewis. Mm-hmm. I've got to go home and I've got to talk to my wife about this. Right. Because any decision career-wise is going to involve her. And I've got to pray about it. Yeah. I've got to make sure I'm ready for it. And that this is going to be, you know, God's path for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. You're smart. Awesome. Smart. Well, I've got good leadership, Drew. <laughs> All right. 
Moving on to our lightning round. Uh, right. Five questions. Uh, you can answer them quick, and you don't have to answer them quick if you don't want. Okay. But uh, first one, greatest person to influence your life? Wow. Uh, I would say uh, the writer Paul Zoll, a writer and friend, uh, it's been a major, major influence on my life. He wrote a book called Grace in Practice, and which I would recommend to everyone. But to me, what it helped to do, what was so important, it helped me to connect my Christian belief with the actual everyday living problems of being a parent um, being in school, uh, being in the church, politics, any you know, just to to bring it down to how does grace actually get worked out in life, and to and there's I think people often experience this uh, separation of their sort of spiritual life or their church life with what they actually you know like what's going to happen around the dinner table. Right. That, yeah, to bring those two together is not always easy. And that's, he's the writer that helped me to do that. Awesome. Um, number two, should religion have more of a place in public education? Hmm. I would say yes. Yeah, I would say yes. Uh, I think the, in, the, Yes. <laughs> Good. That's all I'll say. Good answer. All right, number three. Best thing about swimming? Uh, um, I would say so much of life is about endurance and enduring things. You know, just going, just having to kind of gut through things. There, there are many things that we can just escape from, get out of, you know. I need yeah. to move. I need a new. I need a new job. I need a new house. I need a new pair of shoes. I need a new wife. I need a new whatever. You know, where it's that's the, the first impulse is always to escape and get something new. And swimming, any endurance sport, is you know behind it is this reality that you just have to keep going with the same thing. You know, yeah, it's about endure, enduring without uh, that giving in to that impulse to escape and so to me that's it it, wor it works for me because it's um at a deeper level just because that's so much of what life is about wow yeah so much deeper than the pool <laughs> yeah uh, there's a whole lot more going on than the pool yeah, yeah. That, and, and i've yeah. always wondered do you ever kind of get in a meditative or prayer state while you're swimming uh i would say absolutely it's um another good you know, the great thing about swimming is no one can get me on the phone yeah, that's a wonderful <laughs> yeah. thing about that. Yeah. So even though I'm not, a, don't consider myself a particularly spiritual or prayerful, or prayerful or meditative person, when I dive in the pool, at least there's silence, more or less. Yeah. No one's interrupting me, so it's not prayer like I'm on my knees with the prayer book, but it is. It is prayer in that it's uh, uninterrupted time, largely uninterrupted time, with my self and God. And I do think about it that way. Yeah. yeah. That's, I think yeah. what kind of helped push me into meditation and, and be decent at it when I started doing it was just those, I say hours, hours throughout a week, you know, but an hour straight in the pool, just swimming, mm -hmm. nothing but me and the black line at the bottom of the pool Yeah, and my yeah. breath 
Yeah. Just repetitively. Mm-hmm. And it kind of took me to a place. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, number four, favorite podcast. Um, I really like the podcast uh, Same Old Song, which is a, um, it's a, uh, a, a Bible, it's kind of a Bible study podcast. Okay. Two guys talking about the, the readings for the Sunday, that Sunday in church. But they're hilarious, and they tease each other, and they have a lot of fun with it. So I would recommend Same Old Song. Cool. Yeah. All right, last one. Question number five. Got to end on a high note. <laughs> Favorite non-biblical quote? It's not about... Um, hmm, um, there's a um, quote by Edwin Friedman that says, Don't just do something. Stand there. Have you heard that? Yeah. Don't just do something. Stand there. And, the, and I love that idea. The idea being that it, there are many, many situations in life where the best thing to do is to not do anything. To be observant, thoughtful, but to not act. So many of our problems come out of acting too quickly. You know, it's just the kind of... Yeah. <laughs> Look like you're busy, you know. And it's there's we put a real if you if you want to if you want to look important in life, you act busy. You know, just just being busy is makes you somehow smarter, better. Yeah, it's not the case. I uh, I, I tell my kids all the time respond rather than react. Yeah, yeah. But I same, like that same idea. Yeah, like that quote. Yeah, same idea. Good job. Thanks, Drew. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. See you all next week, guys. My pleasure.